Chapter 10 of In the Heart of Africa by Samuel White Baker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 A Day with the Hawartis. A little before sunrise, I accompanied the Hawartis, or hippopotamus hunters, for a day's sport. At length, we arrived at a large pool in which were several sandbanks covered with rushes and many rocky islands. Among these rocks was a herd of hippopotami, consisting of an old bull and several cows. A young hippo was standing like an ugly little statue on a protruding rock, while another infant stood upon its mother's back that listlessly floated on the water. This was an admirable place for the hunters. They desired me to lie down, and they crept into the jungle out of view of the river. I presently observed them stealthily descending the dry bed about two hundred paces above the spot where the hippos were basking behind the rocks. They entered the river and swam down the center of the stream toward the rock. This was highly exciting. The hippos were quite unconscious of the approaching danger as, steadily and rapidly, the hunters floated down the strong current. They neared the rock, and both heads disappeared as they purposely sank out of view. In a few seconds later, they appeared at the edge of the rock upon which the young hippo stood. It would be difficult to say which started first, the astonished young hippo into the water, or the harpoons from the hands of the Hawartis. It was the affair of a moment. The hunters dived as soon as they had hurled their harpoons, and, swimming for some distance underwater, they came to the surface and hastened to the shore, lest an infuriated hippopotamus should follow them. One harpoon had missed, the other had fixed the bull of the herd, at which it had surely been aimed. Now this was grand sport. The bull was in the greatest fury and rose to the surface, snorting and blowing in his impotent rage, but as the ombach float was exceedingly large, and this naturally accompanied his movements, he tried to escape from his imaginary persecutor and dived constantly, only to find his pertinacious attendant close to him upon regaining the surface. This was not to last long, however. The Hawartis were in earnest, and they at once called their party, who, with two of the Agagirs, Abu Do and Suleiman, were near at hand. These men arrived with the long ropes that form a portion of the outfit of hippo-hunting. The whole party now halted on the edge of the river, while two men swam across with one end of the long rope. Upon gaining the opposite bank, I observed that a second rope was made fast to the middle of the main line. Thus, upon our side, we held the end of two ropes, while on the opposite side they had only one. Accordingly, the point of junction of the two ropes in the center formed an acute angle. The object of this was soon practically explained. Two men on our side now each held a rope, and one of these walked about ten yards before the other. Upon both sides of the river, the people now advanced, dragging the rope on the surface of the water until they reached the ambatch float that was swimming to and fro according to the movements of the hippopotamus below. By a dexterous jerk of the main line, the float was now placed between the two ropes, and it was immediately secured in the acute angle by bringing together the ends of these ropes on our side. The men on the opposite bank now dropped their line, and our men hauled in upon the ombach float that was held fast between the ropes. Thus cleverly made sure, we quickly brought a strain upon the hippo, 
and although i have some experience in handling big fish i never knew one to pull so lustily as the amphibious animal that we now alternately coaxed and bullied he sprang out of the water gnashed his huge jaws snorted with tremendous rage and lashed the river into foam he then dived and foolishly approached us beneath the water we quickly gathered in the slack line and took a turn round upon a large rock within a few feet of the river the hippo now rose to the surface about ten yards from the hunters and jumping half out of the water he snapped his great jaws together endeavoring to catch the rope but at the same instant two harpoons were launched into his side disdaining retreat and maddened with rage the furious animal charged from the depths of the river and gaining a foothold he reared his bulky form from the surface came boldly upon the sandbank and attacked the hunter's open mouth he little knew his enemy they were not the men to fear a pair of gaping jaws armed with a deadly array of tusks but half a dozen lances were hurled at him some entering his mouth from a distance of five or six paces at the same time several men threw handfuls of sand into his enormous eyes this baffled him more than the lances he crunched the shafts between his powerful jaws like straws but he was beaten by the sand and shaking his huge head he retreated to the river during his sally upon the shore two of the hunters had secured the rope of the harpoons that had been fastened in his body just before the charge he was now fixed by three of these deadly instruments but suddenly one rope gave way having been bitten through by the enraged beast who was still beneath the water immediately after this he appeared on the surface and without a moment's hesitation he once more charged furiously from the water straight at the hunters with his huge mouth open to such an extent that he could have accommodated two inside passengers. Suleiman was wild with delight, and springing forward, lance in hand, he drove it against the head of the formidable animal, but without effect. At the same time, Abudo met the hippo, sword in hand, reminding me of Perseus slaying the sea monster that would devour Andromeda, but the sword made a harmless gash, and the lance, already blunted against the rocks, refused to penetrate the tough hide once more handfuls of sand were pelted upon his face and again repulsed by this blinding attack he was forced to retire to his deep hole and wash it from his eyes six times during the fight the valiant bull hippo quitted his watery fortress and charged resolutely at his pursuers he had broken several of their lances in his jaws other lances had been hurled and falling upon the rocks they were blunted and would not penetrate the fight had continued for three hours and the sun was about to set accordingly the hunters begged me to give him the coup de grace as they had hauled him close to the shore and they feared he would sever the rope with his teeth i waited for a good opportunity when he boldly raised his head from the water about three yards from the rifle and a bullet from the little Fletcher between the eyes closed his last act. The spot was not far from the pyramidical hill beneath which I had fixed our camp, to which I returned after an amusing day's sport. The next morning I started to the mountains to explore the limit that I had proposed for my expedition on the Setite. The Arabs had informed me that a river of some importance descended from the mountains and joined the main stream about twelve miles from our camp. 
In about three hours and a half, we arrived at Hor Mehetepe, the stream that the Arabs had reported. Although a powerful torrent during the rains, it was insignificant as one of the tributaries of the Settite, as the breadth did not exceed twenty-five yards. At this season it was nearly dry, and at no time did it appear to exceed the depth of ten or twelve feet. It was merely a rapid mountain torrent. But we were now among the mountains whose drainage causes the sudden rise of the Atbara and the Nile. Abu Dhul and Suleiman had lately given us some trouble, especially the former, whose covetous nature had induced him to take much more than his share of the hides of rhinoceros and other animals shot. The horses of the Agagirs had, moreover, been lamed by reckless riding, and Abu Dhul coolly proposed that I should lend them horses. Having a long journey before me, I refused, and they became discontented. It was time to part, and I ordered him and his people to return to Gira. As Tahir Sharif's party had disagreed with Abu Dhul some time previously and had left us, we were now left without Agagirs. On the following day I succeeded in killing a buffalo, which I ordered my men, after they had flayed it, to leave as bait for lions. That night we were serenaded by the roaring of these animals in all directions, one of them having visited our camp, around which we discovered his footprints on the following morning. I accordingly took Tahir Nur with Hajali and Hassan, two of my trusty Tukruris, and went straight to the spot where I had left the carcass of the buffalo. As I had expected, nothing remained, not even a bone. The ground was much trampled, and tracks of lions were upon the sand, but the body of the buffalo had been dragged into the thorny jungle. I was determined, if possible, to get a shot, therefore I followed carefully the track left by the carcass, which had formed a path in the withered grass. Unfortunately, the lions had dragged the buffalo downwind. Therefore, after I had arrived within the thick nabuk and high grass, I came to the conclusion that my only chance would be to make a long circuit and to creep upwind through the thorns until I should be advised by my nose of the position of the carcass, as it would by this time be in a state of putrefaction, and the lions would most probably be with the body. Accordingly, I struck off to my left, and continuing straight forward for some hundred yards, I again struck into the thick jungle and came round to the wind. Success depended on extreme caution. Therefore, I advised my three men to keep close behind me with the spare rifles, as I carried my single-barreled beady. The rifle was extremely accurate. Therefore, I had chosen it for this close work, when I expected to get a shot at the eye or forehead of a lion crouching in the bush. Softly and with difficulty I crept forward, followed closely by my men, through the high withered grass, beneath the dense nabuk bushes, peering through the thick covert, with the nerves braced up to the full pitch, and the finger on the trigger ready for any emergency. We had thus advanced for about half an hour, during which I frequently applied my nose to within a foot of the ground to catch the scent, when a sudden puff of wind brought the unmistakable smell of decomposing flesh. For the moment I halted, and looking round to my men, I made a sign that we were near to the carcass, and that they were to be ready with the rifles. Again I crept gently forward, 
bending and sometimes crawling beneath the thorns to avoid the slightest noise. As I approached, the scent became stronger until I at length felt that I must be close to the cause. This was highly exciting. Fully prepared for a quick shot, I stealthily crept on. A tremendous roar in the dense thorns within a few feet of me suddenly brought my rifle to the shoulder. Almost in the same instant, I observed the three-quarter figure of either a lion or a lioness within three yards of me on the other side of the bush under which I had been creeping. The foliage concealed the head, but I could almost have touched the shoulder with my rifle. Much depended upon the bullet, and I fired exactly through the shoulder. Another tremendous roar and a crash in the bushes as the animal made a bound forward was succeeded immediately by a similar roar as another lion took the exact position of the last and stood wondering at the report of the rifle and seeking for the cause of the intrusion. This was a grand lion with a shaggy mane, but my rifle was unloaded, and, keeping my eyes fixed on the beast, I stretched my hand back for a spare rifle. The lion remained standing, but gazing upwind with his head raised, snuffling in the air for a scent of the enemy. No rifle was put in my hand. I looked back for an instant, and saw my tokruris faltering about five yards behind me. I looked daggers at them, gnashing my teeth and shaking my fist. They saw the lion, and Tahur Noor, snatching a rifle from Hajali, was just about to bring it, when Hassan, ashamed, ran forward. The lion disappeared in the same moment. Never was such a fine chance lost through the indecision of the gun-bearers. I made a vow never to carry a single-barreled rifle again when hunting large game. If I had had my dear little Fletcher twenty-four, I should have nailed a lion to a certainty. However, there was not much time for reflection. Where was the first lion? Some remains of the buffalo lay upon my right, and I expected to find the lion most probably crouching in the thorns somewhere near us. Having reloaded, I took one of my Riley number 10 rifles and listened attentively for a sound. Presently I heard within a few yards a low growl. Tahir Nuwerk drew his sword, and with his shield before him he searched for the lion, while I crept forward toward the sound, which was again repeated. A low roar, accompanied by a rush in the jungle, showed us a glimpse of the lion as he bounded off within ten or twelve yards. But I had no chance to fire. Again the low growl was repeated, and upon quietly creeping toward the spot, I saw a splendid animal crouched upon the ground amid the withered and broken grass. The lioness lay dying with a bullet wound in her shoulder. Occasionally, in her rage, she bit her own paw violently and then struck and clawed the ground. A pool of blood lay by her side. She was about ten yards from us, and I instructed my men to throw a clod of earth at her, there were no stones, to prove whether she could rise, while I stood ready with a rifle. She merely replied with a dull roar, and I terminated her misery by a ball through the head. She was a beautiful animal. The patch of the bullet was sticking in the wound. She was shot through both shoulders, and as we were not far from the tent, I determined to have her brought to camp upon a camel as an offering to my wife. Accordingly, I left my tokruris while I went with Tyre Noor to fetch a camel. On our road through the thick jungle, I was startled by a rush close to me. 
For the moment, I thought it was a lion, but almost at the same instant, I saw a fine nellet dashing away before me, and I killed it immediately with a bullet through the back of the neck. This was great luck, and we now required two camels, as in two shots I had killed a lioness and a nellet. We remained for some time at our delightful camp at Della Della. Every day, from sunrise to sunset, I was either on foot or in the saddle without rest, except upon Sundays. As our camp was full of meat, either dried or in the process of drying in festoons upon the trees, we had been a great attraction to the beasts of prey, which constantly prowled around our thorn fence during the night. One night, in particular, a lion attempted to enter, but had been repulsed by the two breweries who pelted him with firebrands. My people woke me up and begged me to shoot him, but as it was perfectly impossible to fire correctly through the hedge of thorns, I refused to be disturbed, but promised to hunt him on the following day. Throughout the entire night, the lion prowled around the camp, growling and uttering his peculiar guttural sigh. Not one of my people slept, as they declared he would bound into camp and take somebody unless they kept up the watchfires and drove him away with brands. The next day before sunrise, I called Hassan and Hajali, whom I had lectured severely upon their cowardice on a former occasion, and received their promise to follow me to the death. I entrusted them with my two Rileys, number 10, and with my little Fletcher in hand, I determined to spend the whole day in searching every thicket of the forest for lions as I felt convinced that the animal that had disturbed us during the night was concealed somewhere within the neighboring jungle. The whole day passed fruitlessly. I had crept through the thickest thorns in vain. Having an abundance of meat, I had refused the most tempting shots at buffaloes and large antelopes, as I had devoted myself exclusively to lions. I was much disappointed, as the evening had arrived without a shot having been fired, and as the sun had nearly set, I wandered slowly toward home. Passing through alternate open glades of a few yards' width, hemmed in on all sides by thick jungle, I was carelessly carrying my rifle upon my shoulder as I pushed my way through the opposing thorns, when a sudden roar just before me at once brought the rifle upon full cock, and I saw a magnificent lion standing in the middle of the glade about ten yards from me. He had been lying on the ground, and had started to his feet upon hearing me approach through the jungle. For an instant, he stood in an attitude of attention as we were hardly visible, but at the same moment I took a quick but sure shot with a little Fletcher. He gave a convulsive bound, but rolled over backward. Before he could recover himself, I had fired the left-hand barrel. It was a glorious sight. I had advanced a few steps into the glade, and Hassan had quickly handed me a spare rifle, while Tahir Nur stood by me, sword in hand. The lion, in the greatest fury, with his shaggy mane bristling in the air, roared with death-like growls as open-mouthed he endeavored to charge upon us. But he dragged his hindquarters upon the ground, and I saw immediately that the little Fletcher had broken his spine. In his tremendous exertions to attack, he rolled over and over, gnashing his horrible jaws and tearing holes in the sandy ground at each blow of his tremendous paws that would have crushed a man's skull like an eggshell. Seeing that he was towards the combat, I took it coolly, and as it was already dusk, and the lion having rolled into a dark and thick bush, 
I thought it would be advisable to defer the final attack, as he would be dead before morning. We were not ten minutes' walk from the camp, at which we quickly arrived, and my men greatly rejoiced at the discomfiture of their enemy, as they were convinced that he was the same lion that had attempted to enter the Zariba. On the following morning, before sunrise, I started with nearly all my people and a powerful camel, with the intention of bringing the lion home entire. I rode my horse Teetle, who had frequently shown great courage, and I wished to prove whether he would advance to the body of a lion. Upon arrival near the spot, which we supposed to have been the scene of the encounter, we were rather puzzled, as there was nothing to distinguish the locality. One place exactly resembled another, as the country was flat and sandy, interspersed with a thick jungle of green nabuk. We accordingly spread out to beat for the lion. Present, Haji Ali cried out, There he lies, dead! And I immediately rode to the spot, together with the people. A tremendous roar greeted us as the lion started to his forefeet, and with his beautiful mane erect and his great hazel eyes flashing fire, he gave a succession of deep, short roars and challenged us to fight. This was a grand picture. He looked like a true lord of the forest, but I pitied the poor brute as he was helpless, and although his spirit was game to the last, his strength was paralyzed by a broken back. It was a glorious opportunity for the horse. At the first unexpected roar, the camel had bolted with its rider. The horse had for a moment started on one side, and the men had scattered. But in an instant I had reined teetled up, and I now rode straight toward the lion, who courted the encounter about twenty paces distant. I halted exactly opposite the noble-looking beast, who, seeing me advance to the party, increased his rage and growled deeply, fixing his glance upon the horse. I now patted Teetle on the neck and spoke to him coaxingly. He gazed intently at the lion, erected his mane and snorted, but he showed no signs of retreat. Bravo, old boy, I said, and encouraged him by caressing his neck with my hand. I touched his flank gently with my heel. I let him just feel my hand upon the rein, and with a come along, old lad, Teetle slowly but resolutely advanced step by step toward the infuriated lion that greeted him with continued growls. The horse several times snorted loudly and stared fixedly at the terrible face before him, but as I constantly patted and coaxed him, he did not refuse to advance. I checked him when within about six yards of the lion. This would have made a magnificent picture, as the horse, with astounding courage, faced the lion at bay. Both animals kept their eyes fixed on each other, the one beaming with rage, the other cool with determination. This was enough. I dropped the reins upon his neck. It was a signal that Teetle perfectly understood, and he stood firm as a rock, for he knew that I was about to fire. I took aim at the head of the glorious but distressed lion, and a bullet from the little Fletcher dropped him dead. Teetle never flinched at the shot. I now dismounted, and having patted and coaxed the horse, I led him up to the body of the lion, which I also patted, and then gave my hand to the horse to smell. He snorted once or twice, and as I released my hold of the reins and left him entirely free, he slowly lowered his head and sniffed the mane of the dead lion. 
He then turned a few paces upon one side and commenced eating the withered grass beneath the Nabuk bushes. My Arabs were perfectly delighted with this extraordinary instance of courage exhibited by the horse. I had known that the beast was disabled, but Tidalit advanced boldly toward the angry jaws of a lion that appeared about to spring. The camel was now brought to the spot and blindfolded while we endeavored to secure the lion upon its back. As the camel knelt, it required the united exertions of eight men, including myself, to raise the ponderous animal and secure it across the saddle. Although so active and cat-like in its movements, a full-grown lion weighs about 550 pounds. Having secured it, we shortly arrived in camp. The coup de oil was beautiful as the camel entered the enclosure with a shaggy head and massy paws of the dead lion hanging upon one flank, while the tail nearly descended to the ground upon the opposite side. It was laid at full length before my wife, to whom the claws were dedicated as a trophy to be worn around the neck as a talisman. Not only are the claws prized by the Arabs, but the mustache of the lion is carefully preserved and sewn in a leather envelope to be worn as an amulet, as such charm is supposed to protect the wearer from the attacks of wild animals. We were now destined to be deprived of two members of the party. Mahomet had become simply unbearable, and he was so impertinent that I was obliged to take a thin cane from one of the Arabs and administer a little physical advice. An evil spirit possessed the man, and he bolted off with some of the camel men who were returning to Gira with the dried meat. Our great loss was Baraka. She had persisted in eating the fruit of the Heglik, although she had suffered from dysentery upon several occasions. She was, at length, attacked with a congestion of the liver. My wife took the greatest care of her, and for weeks she had given her the entire produce of the goats, hoping that milk would keep up her strength. But she died after great suffering, and we buried the poor creature and moved our camp. End of chapter 10